0: You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. God as creator and life giver. Everybody say life giver. Okay, let's, let's do that a little bit better. I know we just lost 110 children from the room, but let's say life giver. It's life important. God as creator and life giver speaks to the created ones. And as a divine parent, the life giver and creator looks upon the beloved and says in Deuteronomy 32, verse 18, You ignored the rock who gave you birth. You forgot the God who gave birth to you. You hear the language? The God who gives birth. What imagery is that? motherly, maternal imagery, the God who gives birth to you. And even through the mouths of the prophets, God speaks as creator and divine parent, where God says in Isaiah 49, Zion says, the Lord has abandoned me, the Lord has forgotten me, but can a woman forget her nursing child or lack compassion for the child of her womb? Even if these forget, I will not forget you. Isaiah 66, verse 12. For this is what the Lord says, I'll make peace, flow to her like a river, her being the people of God, and the wealth of nations like a flood. You will nurse and be carried on her hip and bounced on her lap. As a mother comforts her son, so I will comfort you, and you will be comforted in Jerusalem. It's the language of God as a divine parent, language of God as mother the language of God as life-giver, nurturer, sustainer. And then in Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 19, the image returns, but the heart remains the same. Jeremiah 3, verse 13, the Lord's words through Jeremiah. I thought to myself, I would love to treat you as my own children. I wanted nothing more than to give you this beautiful land, the finest possession in the world... I looked forward to your calling me Father. And I wanted you to never turn from me. God, now the imagery turns to Divine Father. From imageries of Divine Mother. Which is to lead us to one understanding above all things. And that is that God is a Divine Parent. Longing to give life to God's Beloved. Longing to nurture, longing to provide, fighting for, even if it means fighting with, in a pursuit for the beloved of God to know God's belovedness. And then later on, the creator and life giver comes to us as one of the created ones in what we call the incarnation, Jesus, right? And Jesus tells this story of God's parental love. And I want to encourage you to make sure that you do not allow the overfamiliarity with this story to cause you to miss some of the beautiful little nuances and layers that's present in this story Jesus tells about a father and a couple sons. Luke 15, verse 11. Jesus also said, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. So the father distributed the assets to them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. After he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country and he had nothing. Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. When he came to his census, he said to himself, How many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food, and here I am dying of hunger. I'll get up and go to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against you and in your sight, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. So he got up and went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I sinned against you, heaven in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his servants, Quick, bring out the best robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then I want you to bring the fattened calf and slaughter it. Let's celebrate with a feast. Because the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now, his older son was in the field. He came near the house. Everybody say near the house. Yes. Not in the house. And he heard music and dancing. So he summoned one of the servants questioning what these things meant. Your brother's here, the servant said, and your father slaughtered the fattened calf because he's he's come back safe and sound. And then the son became angry and didn't want to go in the house. So his father came out because the son didn't go in. His father came out and pleaded with him. Everybody say pleaded. But he replied to his father, look, I've been slaving many years for you and I've never disobeyed your orders. You you never gave me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours has come, who's devoured your assets with prostitutes. He slaughtered the fattened calf for him. And the father said to him, son, you're always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Do you see it? When we look through scriptures we see God revealed in the imagery of mother and father and it's inviting us to see how God is above and beyond our distinctions of gender. Because God is the life giving creator and divine parent of us all. God needs us, longs for us, it seems, to see that God is the source of all life. And since God is the source of all life, God alone can give us life, which means then God alone is the only one who can be enough for us. No other created one can be for us what God alone can be, because God is divine creator, as divine parent, as life-giving, life-sustainer, whose imagery shows God as both mother and father is God's way, it seems, of saying to us, that longing you feel to be known, only I can really give you that. That longing that you feel to be understood, only I can give you that. That longing you feel to be seen, only I can give you that. Do not put that pressure on my created ones to be for you what only I can be. I alone am enough, God says. Because we never will be. And please hear me on this. And we don't have to be. We don't have to be. It's not an expectation God holds. Katharina of Siena, she was this 14th century lover of God she was an activist before it was cool in the middle ages you'd have to read about her story she died at 33 but she said something beautiful about the love of God she embodied this love for God she embodied an understanding of God's love for her and so oftentimes, people would write to her and ask how is that even working out in your life like how do you how do you know God like you know God love God like you love God she wrote this she said God has love to us without being loved you hear that Come on, y'all wait. God has loved us without being loved. God loved us first. You hear sometimes in Christian music and you hear people talk about how we are made for worship. We weren't made for worship. We weren't made for the glory of God like the catechisms say. That's not how we were. That's not the chief end of all men. The chief end of all men is not to give glory to God. The chief end of all men is to know what it means to be in life with God, to be loved by God, and to love God. That is the chief end of all men. Why do I say that? Because that's an original glory. In original glory, God made humanity to share in the life of God. We are made for love. You don't hear It said in the Hebrew scriptures that the chief end of our lives is to worship God. Worshiping God comes out of an understanding of God's adoration and love for us. And worship comes then out of an understanding of our adoration and God's love and our love for God. That's where worship comes from. We do not worship because we do not love. And therefore we cannot give glory when we do not worship and we do not love. Love is the chief end of who we are. And to be with and to share in the life of God. And in the Hebrew Scriptures, over and over and over again, you see this imagery of God as this divine parent in pursuit of a people that God loves. So much so that Katharina of Siena said, later on she wrote, we are such value to God that He came to live among us and to guide us home. Everybody say Home. So if you want to know what you're made for, you're made to be at home with God. Come on now. You're made to be at home with God. She goes on to say, he'll go to any length to seek us. Even to be lifted high upon the cross to draw us back to himself. We can only respond by loving God for his love. The soul is in God and God is in the soul. And then Katharina of Siena says something that I think is better than our little phrase of Christ is as close to you as the breath in your lung. It's not as poetic, but it's definitely better. This is what she says. She says, God is closer to us than water is to the fish. I just like the imagery. Again, not as poetic. But powerful imagery. Beloved. We see Jesus and we remember on the cross that the love of God is magnified. And I need to say this because there's a lot of theology about only really 1,000 years of it. I want to be clear. Only 1,000 years has this theology existed in Christian history. I just want to be really clear on this because I think it's important to remember That we're told that on the cross of God, the wrath of God is satisfied. And we're taught to believe somehow that Jesus does what Jesus does on the cross and somehow changes God's mind about how God feels about us. That is not what we see in the Hebrew text. It's not what we see in Jesus. And it's not what we learned the first thousand years the church was in existence. Because it's not that on the cross, the wrath of God is satisfied. It's on the cross that the love of God is magnified. And what we see is that Jesus dies for us because God loves us. God does not love us because Jesus died for us. Jesus didn't change God's mind for you and for me and for us. Jesus revealed God's mind for us. And that's a different way of understanding what God's doing in the world. It's a way of, different way of understanding of God's pursuit for you and your pursuit for me. And it's what we see in the Hebrew Scriptures. Because here's what it comes down to. Okay, here's what it comes down to. Because all that's really just the introduction. I'm just kidding. It's not. It's the, the, that's all part of it. God doesn't love us with an insecure love. Come on now. You hear that? God doesn't love us with an insecure love that is fretful, anxious, or reactionary. God's love for us as a divine parent is a love that is with a secure love because God is not an insecure parent. God isn't like me and you. God doesn't fall into the trap of pining after our children. God doesn't fall in the trap of Betraying our own value system just because we're afraid our children won't love us anymore. God doesn't fall into the trap of generational trauma that we've been formed by in our trauma bonding and the way we unhealthily attach to our children. God doesn't fall into the because i would said so mentality. God doesn't fall into the don't come, make me come back there mentality. God doesn't do those things. You do not see that in scripture and you do not see that imagery of the father who is in pursuit of both of his sons God doesn't love like me and you and that actually can be liberating because if God's love is not insecure we can learn how to love with a secure love too See, because God's love is secure, we can learn to be secure. But only when we are not secure in our performance of love, but when we're secure in what God has done for us and who God is. Here's here's what I mean. Like a secure parent, God is patient yet responsive. God is firm, yet gentle. God is not anxious or reactionary. See, like a secure parent, God isn't thrown into chaos by our moods, which I confess this in First Gathering is a good thing because I kind of woke up in one. God is able to be steady and fully present in the tears and the laughter, the disappointments and the achievements. God is not surprised by our missteps and our failings. God will never define us by our worst decisions. Even in the midst of the hard consequences that come as a result of those decisions, even there God believes the best in us and will be with us wanting the best for us. And even if it isn't what we want for ourselves. And we see that over and over again in the Hebrew scriptures where the people of God are running from God, turning away from God, trusting in someone other than God. And God doesn't abandon them in those consequences. He may not save them from the consequences of their disordered love, but God will be with them in the midst of those consequences, ready to liberate and deliberate them, even if it means God has to unsettle us and disturb us. But in God's commitment to unsettle us or disturb us, God will never do it by coercion. Or manipulation. Are you hearing me? God wants us to see deliverance and liberation and invites us to see in deliverance and liberation, but will not force us to see. God will not force us to accept any blessing. God is not an insecure parent like I am, God is secure. God doesn't have to buy into these ideas of manhood and womanhood, which are usually built on social constructs anyway. One of the things I ask first service to consider doing when they leave is what I'm going to ask you to consider doing when you leave. Leave today. I encourage you to leave today and let go of whatever view of womanhood and manhood you have and turn it toward likehood. Does that make sense? Look to Christ as your exemplar of humanity. Because that's rooted in your baptismal identity. And be that. Because that's enough anyway. Because that's actually what you have. That's what I have. We have Christ. The one who is sensitive and compassionate and strong. And firm and gentle. The one who is all the things that some of us cannot be. And then gives us the spirit to help us become what God knows we can be. See, because like a secure parrot, God loves us unconditionally and embraces the vulnerability that comes with such a love. You know what I mean? Like, like a secure parent, God assumes the risks of love. God knows some of us won't love back. But God loves us anyway. God knows that some of us may take our estate and all of the assets that we have in the kingdom and just run and squander it all, and God loves us anyway. God assumes the risks of love. Which is why God doesn't have to manipulate and coerce and betray God's own value system and God's own beliefs. Which is why God seems like God doesn't feel the need to perform. God just loves and does what is natural and right and good and just and holy in love. Because God doesn't have anything to prove. Because God's already shown us who God is in Christ. But we live in a society that tells us we have something to prove. And if we are parents, we live in a society that tells us we have to prove something as parents, prove something as men, prove something as women, prove something based on our genders, based on our, our skin, based on our bodies. And so then what we don't realize we're doing is we begin to fall into a performative love. We begin to love for performance sake sometimes to meet approval, sometimes so that we don't lose those we love and we have a hard time holding on to the vulnerability that love requires and pressing into the God who knows us best and loves us most and always wants those we love more whole than we want them to be made whole. Are you with me? Who always wants them more forgiven than we want them to be forgiven. So we live our lives many times with something to prove. And hear me out, I've said this a hundred times, I'll say it a hundred times more until Jesus takes me home. When we live as though we have something to prove, like to save face with others, to keep people in our lives, to not lose, it's because we have something to lose. And when we live with our lives with something to prove because we have something to lose then we will always live as though we have something to fear. And you know what drives out love? Fear. You know when we don't make our best decisions? When we're in fear. You know when we bow into anxiety and reactionary postures of love is when we're driven by fear. And that is our battle. That is our continuum of tension. I have prayed for Ian every day of his life from the age of four. And Ian would pray it too, and if you asked him, he would say it. He always prays every morning, God, help me to remember that I have nothing to prove, nothing to lose, nothing to fear, because I'm loved by you, and that's enough. And we have to learn how that is enough. And the only way for us to learn how that is enough, at least the first step, is recognizing that I don't have to be enough. Because now I'm allowed to be vulnerable in my love. So you know what you're all allowed to do? You're liberated from performing love. Feel free to blow it. I mean, really. How many parents that I've pastored who, like, don't tell anybody about my kids, will you pray for me? Why? Because somehow you think everybody else is perfect with theirs? Because we're going to judge each other for it? Has everybody looked at their parenting? I mean, none of us are, we don't have to be perfect. We don't have to perform it. We can be imperfect in love. Because the only way we become perfected in love is when we're willing to admit that we need perfection in love. But when we recognize that we're not going to be the ones to do it perfectly. And we don't have to. God never called us to love perfectly. God called us to love faithfully. And the only way to love faithfully is when we love imperfectly, that we ask forgiveness for the imperfect love, that we say we're sorry when we don't meet the demands of love, when we say that we did it wrong or that I was wrong. But fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters and sons and daughters and human beings who won't say, I'm sorry, human beings who won't say, I did it wrong, human beings who won't say, I hurt you and I repent and I will do the repair of that, what we're seeing when we become those people is a people who are actually afraid to love. And Yahweh is calling us to a liberation of love to help us see that in our insecurity, God isn't insecure. He's he's okay. And if God is secure, then I can be secure, even in my insecurity. So I want to say this to those of us who are parents or to those of us one day planning to be. The best thing we can do for our children is find our security in God's love. And when we are insecure, remind ourselves and our children that God never is. Are you with me? For all of us, the greatest love we can give is a love that is secure from a person who is also secure in God's love. And if I can give that, then I can admit my wrongs and right my wrongs. Then I can stop feeling the need to have something to prove to my children or to you or to my neighbors, and I can then just be freer to love. So say what they want to say about me. Do what you want to do to me. I am free to love. That's where we can go. And that's the kind of love that can liberate. But that love does not happen by mustering up it in ourselves, which is why we've tried so hard. That love happens when we ultimately begin to realize what it means, and I mean what it means to be loved by God just as I am, not as I should be, trusting that God's love is the only power that can transform me into who I can be. That's why we mean when we say God knows us best and loves us most. That stuff you don't want to tell anybody That stuff you don't even want to admit. God already knows it. And He loves you. So then what is there to hide? See, when we're able to reveal the most vulnerable wounds of ourselves with someone who has proven again and again that they'll be gentle and not abandon us, then we can learn how to be gentle to ourselves and not abandon ourselves. God will work in our wounds, with our wounds, and through our wounds to show us that our wounds do not have the final word. God can be trusted with these wounds. God can break the generational cycles of trauma. God can break the unhealthy patterns of family systems that have been formed in our lives by those who formed us. God can disrupt and dismantle the systems of oppression and our social constructs that threaten our way of being. God will deliver us and fight for us, comfort us and provide for us, because God is a faithful, divine parent who does not love with an insecure love. So before you turn this all around on yourself and start thinking through how insecure your love is, as I have thought mine all morning and week, that's fine. Do the soul work. and That's okay. I don't want to take that away from what the Spirit may want to do in you. But I ask you to remember this first. Do not go there until you truly remember and realize that God loves you with a secure love. Does that make sense? Everybody good? If you have any questions about that or any critiques about that, then email John at john at williamsburgchristianchurch.org john at williamsburgchristianchurch.org let him know how you feel so look I'm going to wrap this up in the story of the prodigal son I want you to realize something if you will, I'll invite you to see something with me did you notice that in the prodigal son story that the son doesn't return home because of the renewed love for his father? Did you notice that? Did you notice that he comes back home simply to survive because he ran out of money and is starving? Did you notice that? Did you notice that the father didn't say, come home when you're sorry about it? Are you really sorry? Did you notice that about God? Because the father's God in the story, not me and you. Just want to be clear. Did you notice That kind of secure love? Did you notice how the son rehearses his speech to his father? He says, I'm going to say this and I'm going to say that. And then he gets to the father and he says, here's this and here's that. Did you notice that the father ain't even hearing it? That the father doesn't say thank you or I needed to hear that before I give you? Did you notice that the only response of the father is, he's home? Did you notice that? Because the father isn't fretful. The father isn't anxious. The father isn't reactionary. Not even toward the son who sabotaged his life. But he's also not any of that toward the older son who showed his resentful and entitled disposition. His father just wants them both home. Because in the story, we see a father waiting on his son and not waiting on a way that requires the son to come to him, but waits on his tiptoes and runs out to him to embrace him. And then in that embrace, you notice in the story how God goes to find the lost elder son because the lost elder son is lost because he's not in the house either. He's not home either. Because did you hear the story? The story is intentional. Jesus says he didn't come inside the house. And his refusal to come in did you see how the father went out? Did you hear how Jesus said that the father went out to the son and was with the older self-righteous son and sat there and pleaded with him? Did you hear the word pleaded with him? Did you hear the father say, "Boy, you better get right and come on inside? Did you hear that? Because I didn't hear that. Did you hear the father come him and say, get inside? Why, dad? Because I said so. Did you hear that? I didn't hear that. Did you hear the father just simply plead with the son? And did you hear how the father pleaded? Did you hear what the father said to the son? The father just simply said to the son, Son, I know, but you're with me. Everything I have is what? Yours. You, son, have nothing to prove either. Come on now. Because you know all he wants. All he wants is for them to come home. That's all he wants. Because that's all God wants. It's for us to just be home. You know what else we see? So, what we see is that the father's faithfulness will always overcome his children's faithlessness. You see that? And as beautiful as all that is to me, and as I'm inviting you to see that, there's one primary thing I want to invite you to see, and then we'll be done. Is that no matter how far we wander, no matter how distracted we become, no matter how much we lose our way, no matter how much we may feel we have something to prove, no matter how much we think we have to perform, no matter how insecure we are, no matter how far we go, the one thing that we can always know is that God as father and mother is always home. The light is always on. You will never come back to God and God not be there. Even if we're like the younger son, lost in the consequences of our own selfishness, or like the older son, lost in our self-righteousness, God just wants us home. Because home is where we can flourish. Home is a place of nurturing, even when there's conflict. It's a place of generosity and responsibility, where everyone gives and receives. Home is a place of security. And hear me out in this, please. Home is a place where there is security because there are boundaries. Everybody say boundaries. Come on, say it again. Say boundaries. Boundaries. And these boundaries are marked by commitments and values, practices, stories, and meaning that is special and specific to the people who call that place home. An insecure love, hear me out, loves without boundaries in that way. You hear me? But a secure love loves with boundaries. Not determining who gets put in. You hear me? This isn't an exclusive love. Faithful love loves without exclusion. But faithful love loves with security that says, What it means to be in love is to live in love. Does that make sense? It marks off clear spaces and concrete identities. It's a means of orientation. There are no barriers or fortresses to exclude others from calling this place home. But there is a way of life and understanding that is shared with the people who call it home that make it home does that make sense to everybody it's important because we live in a society of relational harms it's important that you understand that those who harm us those who say ugly things to us those who tear us down are demonstrating an insecure love that is harmful for us and we have to have boundaries from that that is not exclusion that is actually called love God as father and mother welcomes us home and makes a home with us. And in this society where boundaries are blurred and it's ever-changing, we need that kind of love and identity that God offers us as a gracious and generous homemaker. Because that's who God is, a gracious and generous homemaker. Everybody say homemaker. God is seen as a gracious and generous homemaking parent whose hospitality is connected to God's own presence and sovereignty and provision. And then we as a people who are adopted in as children and made citizens of this kingdom are now, find ourselves home with God, are now called to make a home possible for others. And so here's how I close. It's too easy for us to leave today going, God loves us with a secure love, and I'm at home with God, and God will pursue me, and all of those things. It's too easy to take this with me in the center of the conversation, and that doesn't change. You and I are in the center of this conversation. I should say God's in the center of this conversation, and we are organizing our lives around the God who's in the center, but it's not just enough for us to receive it because God now calls us to go live it and to make sure that other people know that home is possible with God. Are you with me? Because you remember how the father goes and runs after the son? You remember that? The question for us is will we follow the father and running after the son? Or will we be the opposite of a secure love and make people apologize when they come into the church? Make people have to behave a certain way when they come into the church before they're loved by the people of God? You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church. A community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast.